there is a term um, that many Christians use which differentiates them from those who maybe use the word Christian in a more general sense. Those who perhaps go to church occasionally, um, special occasions maybe, um, they don't associate with any other religion and if they were filling out a questionnaire which says what religion are you, they might tick the box to say that they are Christian. So there's a term that kind of differentiates um, Christians who see themselves as truly followers of the Lord Jesus um, from other people who might just regard themselves as, themselves as Christian in a, more, in a more general way. And it's a term that Jesus himself used, uh, as we're going to see in our passage today, and it conveys the most fundamental truth about Christianity. And yet, it's also a term that is often used as a form of mockery, a way of identifying anyone who might possibly define themselves by this term um, as being a bit weird, a little bit um, extreme. And it is the term born again. Um, as members of this church, um, we trust that we are all born again Christians. So our passage today is um, John chapter 3, the next one in our series as we work our way through the Gospel of John. We're looking at just the first 21 verses of chapter 3, and uh, it includes probably the most quoted verse in the whole Bible, um, John chapter 3 and uh, verse 16. So um, we're going to read the passage in a moment. Uh, it is... Um, it's John 3 and 16, of course, is a, a passage which, uh, a verse that we, um, we, we, we teach to the most youngest of children, isn't it? Um, and yet when I looked at the passage today and as we go through it, there are actually some quite difficult verses in this passage as, we, as we're going to find out. But let's see how we get on. Maybe it's just me that finds them difficult. So I'll read the whole passage first. Starting from verse 1 of John chapter 3. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you were doing if God were not with them. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirits. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. 
I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. So that's our passage. And it starts by introducing us um, to this um, guy called Nicodemus. Nicodemus, I think we can assume, was quite a clever person. Um, he was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Jewish, um, the Jewish uh, ruling council. And he was someone who probably had a very good working knowledge of the Old Testament and how the law, as it was originally given and how it had been evolved um, by the religious teachers of the day, um, how that law was applied in um, everyday Jewish life. And he had probably seen the signs that Jesus was doing. It says in the previous chapter that um, many people in Jerusalem had seen these signs and they believed in the name of Jesus. It isn't clear exactly what they believed about Jesus at this point. Maybe it was only as much as what Nicodemus said to Jesus. In other words, they believed that Jesus was some sort of teacher that had been um, sent by God, similar to John the Baptist, perhaps. We know Nicodemus was interested and we assume, we assume that he was interested in a way which was different to his colleagues on the ruling council, the other, the other Pharisees. Uh, and I say that because he came to Jesus at night, um, probably to avoid being seen. Uh, John doesn't say that was the reason why he came at night, but it seems to be a reasonable assumption why, why he would do that. And he didn't ask a question, he made a statement, but really Nicodemus came to ask a question, and there was an implied question, and his implied question was, are you, are you a teacher come from God? So that's the easy bit of the passage, I think. <laughs> um, and then the language gets a little bit cryptic. And I'm not sure if Jesus was deliberately talking in riddles, um, to avoid revealing too much too early. We know that that was the approach that Jesus did in his early ministry. He didn't want to say too much about who he was and, 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 um, and why he had come until much later in his three years of ministry. Um, so maybe that was the reason why um, some of the things are a bit difficult to understand. Or maybe he was just testing Nicodemus 
about things that he ought to understand. As he said in verse 10, you're Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? So maybe he was just sort of of putting Nicodemus in his place, um, so to speak. Either way, Jesus made it clear in his response um, that he was indeed um, from God, but he went further, didn't he? He talked about the need to see the kingdom of God. It's an interesting phrase, that um, term, isn't it? The kingdom of God. Uh, and strangely, it's, it's mentioned a lot in Matthew, Mark, and the Gospel of Luke. And, and John hardly mentions it at all. Only twice, and both in the passage that we've just, um, we've just read. But when it comes to the subject of eternal life, John mentions that a lot, and the other Gospel writers hardly mention it at all. Is that significant? Uh, I think maybe. Um, I think all the gospel writers are really just focusing on different aspects of the same thing. The kingdom of God, whatever it is in its fullest sense, is the place where God rules. And it is the place where God can grant eternal life. It's a bit strange, I think, that Nicodemus should take it so literally when Jesus said that the only way to see this kingdom was to be born again. Uh, By the way, that phrase, um, born again, can also be translated as born from above. But it's not quite as snappy, is it? To say you're a born from above Christian is like a little bit bit of a mouthful, so maybe uh, maybe we stick with born again. Um, It doesn't really matter which translation you, you, you use, though, because either way, it means to be reborn. It means to start over. And the reference to being born from above does give us a clue that this is, this, is a, this is a spiritual thing. So Nicodemus takes this a little bit literally, which I think is a bit strange. But in fairness to Nicodemus, it was a new concept for him to grasp, wasn't it? And as a religious teacher, um, this was difficult. This was difficult for Nicodemus. Difficult, but then on the other hand, Nicodemus was used to metaphors. He was used to the vague language of some of the old prophecies of the Old Testament, which meant very little at the time to people because they were speaking of things way off in the future. There's a lot of allegories and metaphors and things in the, in, in, in the Old Testament, deliberately so, as God spoke via the prophets in different ways. Um, so you would have thought that Nicodemus would kind of appreciate that what Jesus was saying was was maybe not to be taken completely literally. And yet he says in verse 4, how can someone be born when they're old? Uh, Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Come on, Nicodemus. That's kind of like ridiculous, isn't it? But I think it just shows how hard it can be sometimes Uh, And how hard it was for the religious leaders of the day to think outside the box. To think outside the box of everything they'd grown up with. Everything that they thought that they knew and understood about the Old Testament and, and, and God's purposes. For Nicodemus, it made more sense to assume Jesus was talking about getting back inside his mother's womb than the the idea that all of his religious learning and devotion and commitment and practice 
that somehow all of that needs to be thrown out and um, that he needed to start all over again. It's a weakness of human nature that we should be alert to in our own lives, um, if we can take anything from this. The tendency to only see and hear what we want to, accepting only viewpoints and evidence that, uh, that supports our existing beliefs, an inability to accept that sometimes we can be wrong about things, even things that we were very sure about um, previously. So we always need to surrender our preconceived convictions even to the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit and to have an inquiring and an open mind um, as we seek God's truth and purpose in our lives. So Nicodemus is confused and in verse 5 Jesus clarifies sort of what he was talking about by saying that to enter the kingdom of God a person needs to be born of water and of the spirits. Now it's not really very clear what that means. Um, various commentators have pointed out alternatives, what, you know, what it may or may not mean. Um, most commentators say that it probably doesn't refer to Christian baptism. Um, because that would mean nothing to Nicodemus, because uh, it, well, it hadn't been invented yet, had it? Um, and it's unlikely that it was referring to the baptism of John the Baptist either, because that was very quickly, very soon going to become irrelevant. It's irrelevant to us. We don't need to go and find a, a John the Baptist kind of person out in the wilderness to, um, to have faith in God. So some think it's referring to the water of cleansing, um, that is a theme that we find in the Old Testament quite a bit, um, and, and we're not going to read it, but exam one example is Ezekiel chapter 36, where it refers to the water of cleansing. Uh, and that would be something that Nicodemus could relate to, um, because of his expertise in the Old Testament. Uh, and for me, that seems to be the most likely um, interpretation. Jesus is saying that to enter God's kingdom we need both to be cleansed by God, to have our sins forgiven, and we need a spiritual transformation. We need water and the spirits. The NIV translation assumes that the reference to the spirit here is the Holy Spirit. In my, the version I'm using, the word spirit is capitalised, so the NIV translators have assumed that it is the Holy Spirit. And I think that's right because that would also be an appropriate interpretation of the following verse, uh, where it says that the spirit gives birth to spirit. That's verse, verse 6. So what verse 6 is saying is that our nature comes from the type of birth that we've had. Um, if we've only had a natural birth, our nature will be just human. But if we've had a spiritual birth, if we've been born again, our nature will be spiritual. The bottom line is that the forgiveness of sins, cleansing, and the work of the Holy Spirit are both essential to the process of spiritual rebirth um, to be born um, again. I say, there's some, I think some of this, some of this, 
these verses are hard to understand, so forgive me if this sounds a little bit dry as I try to tease out and to just share with you the different thoughts on this. It's very easy sometimes to take a passage of the Bible and just jump on your favourite verse and ignore all the verses which are around it. And it's important that we do have a, that we spend time trying to make sense of things which are hard because it can bring to life all the more the favourite verse in the middle, as we're going to get to. Let's look at verse 8. Um, verse 8, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, and we can certainly do that today, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. What's that saying? I think it's saying that the outworking of the Holy Spirit should be visible in our lives. And you notice at the end of the verse it says that should be the case with everyone born of the Spirit. So it's all of us if we are believers in the Lord Jesus. Visible, but not necessarily understood. In other words, just like we can see and hear the wind without being able to see precisely where it's going or where it's coming from, um, so is the work of God in our lives. What does that mean um, in, in practical terms? We know that we are God's handiwork. Ephesians 2 and 10. We know that he's doing a work um, within us, Philippians 2 and 14. We know that he'll bring that work to completion <coughs> one day, Philippians 1 and 6. But understanding where God is leading in our day-to-day -day lives and understanding why certain things happen, maybe difficult things, even painful things, sad things, disappointments, things which are just downright confusing. Well, trying to understand that is like trying to see the wind. And we have to trust in promises like Romans 8 and 28, which says that we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And we trust in our wider knowledge of the God of love, who would never um, allow anything to happen to us which is truly harmful. Um, although there may be difficult things that we go through um, in this life. Let's move on to verse 12. Verse 12, I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? You might think that's a bit of a curious verse to sort of um, pick out. But the question, what are the earthly things that Nicodemus, um, that Jesus has been saying to Nicodemus? You know, what are they? You know, it, it, assuming we've got the whole conversation recorded here, Jesus has been speaking about the new birth. And... Although we've been thinking about the new birth as a spiritual thing, what we have here, I think Jesus is saying that it's actually an earthly thing. That's different from saying it's a worldly thing of this world, but it is an earthly thing because the act of becoming a Christian is something that we do in this life, on earth. It's on earth that we put our faith in Christ and choose to follow Jesus. Is that um, an important point? I wasn't sure, wasn't sure whether to bring it up. Um, but maybe the point that we can take from that is the solemn reality that there are no further opportunities in the afterlife. 
When we leave this earth, and the Bible teaches that we're all going to do that one day, all people will stand before God day, whether God one day, whether they're Christians or non-Christians, it will be too late for anyone who has rejected God's invitation. But if the new birth is an earthly thing, what are the heavenly things? Well, they're not mentioned in the passage, are they? I don't think they're mentioned in the passage because Nicodemus wasn't ready for them. But that doesn't mean that they're not available to us because we have the whole of the New Testament now. And um, if we read through the rest of the New Testament, we find so much more revealed about what we are in Christ and about God and about his future, future purposes. Things which just would have blown Nicodemus's mind if, um, if Jesus had told him about any of that stuff at this stage. But we shouldn't be too hard, I don't think, on Nicodemus. Um, because in Hebrews 5, verse 12, we see that even Christians who had been taught so much more than Nicodemus, they were still struggling and stuck in the elementary things. They lacked the understanding to move on to the more meaty, um, deeper doctrines. And hopefully that's, that's not true of us because one aspect of spiritual maturity and spiritual growth is our ability to grow in our knowledge of God and our understanding of how God works and what he wants. That's why I say we shouldn't be too shy of things which are difficult to understand in the Bible because when we dig deeper and if we commit time to trying to work out some of the harder passages, what they're saying. Honestly, we can find treasure in those passages, things about God and Jesus and about ourselves even that we never might have realized if we just went to our favorite easy to understand uh, verses. So let's not be like the Hebrews or those who were in that that, that, that letter was written to and uh, get uh, and, and, and be stuck in the elementary things. Let's move on to to deeper things. If we understand verse 12 correctly um, to mean that some things in God's purposes happen on earth and some things happen in heaven, then maybe that explains why we've got verse 14. Because um, verse 14, although we, it's quite a well-known verse, lots of people quote it, but why is it here? It, it just doesn't fit with anything that's just gone before it. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life. What we have here, um, in Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness, something that he did on earth at God's command, is a picture of the Lord Jesus being lifted up and nailed to the cross, when he gave his life for our sins. And that is a work that the Lord Jesus also did on earth. It was an earthly work. We're making the distinction between things that happen in heaven and things that happen on earth. And I think that's what we have in these couple of verses. It's a bit of a bridge. It's a bridge from what um, Jesus had been saying to Nicodemus before, and he's moving on to introduce us to verse um, 16, that um, famous verse that um, I've already referred to, John 3, verse 16. I used to work for a guy, um, and he wasn't a Christian, and uh, 
he, he, he lived a terrible life, in my humble opinion. I mean, he was a really bad, bad kind of guy. And yet he could quote John 3.16. You know, he, he, just, he just knew it, you know. So it's, it's, it's incredible that, that, that the, the knowledge of that verse has got such a wide scope. And we trust and hope and pray that even so, the living word of God, for those who are able to recite these things without really having much interest in them, that it might one day settle in their hearts. Verse 16 and the few verses which follow. We don't actually know if Jesus said these verses. Uh, I, I grew up as a child thinking because I just kind of like read the passage without thinking about it, that this was Jesus speaking. We don't actually know because it could, this, this, this could be commentary from the Apostle John as he wrote his gospel, as led by the Holy Spirit. Um, but either way, what we have in verse 16, um, in a nutshell, as, 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 it, as it's often said, is the gospel. Uh, we see the universal nature of God's love, we see the sacrificial cost of God's love, and we see the eternal purposes of God's love. For God so loved the world, that's that universal nature, loves everyone. He gave his one and only son the most incredible uh, sacrifice, and he did so so that we might have eternal life, his eternal purposes. You know, we could spend a lot of time on this uh, verse, and maybe having gone through all of that complicated stuff, maybe you're wishing that I just spent all my time talking about that one verse. Um, but um, we don't have time to, because we are supposed to be looking at a whole passage today. But I don't think I can really move on without saying very simply, and um, perhaps not for the benefit of you guys, but maybe for the benefit of anyone who listens to this recording in due course, who does not yet know the experience of becoming born again. Maybe we should just say for a moment that this verse that comes to you with all the authority of the word of God is saying that God loves you. And he always has. And he loves you so much that he gave his son, Jesus, to die in your place. Not only to die in your place, but to be raised from the grave and to live as your saviour. He wasn't just given to be your sac the sacrifice, he was given to be our living Lord. And if we believe in Jesus, who he is and what he's done for us, the gift of God is eternal life. That truly is the gospel uh, in a nutshell. I'll talk about the alternative to that in a moment, um, which is mentioned in the verse, but I did just want to add for the appreciation of all, all of us, is that that phrase at the end of the verse, have eternal life, it's, it's in the present tense. It's not, it's not a future thing. We have it now. And that makes sense of another verse that we can read later on in John's Gospel, in chapter 17, verse 3, which says that eternal life, apart from being life that never ends, it says in John 17, verse 3, that eternal life is knowing God and the Lord Jesus. It's a relationship which begins the moment that we believe. And therefore, we understand that true belief isn't just about taking God's gift and then forgetting all about him. It's not grabbing the gift and then running off. Uh, it implies a willingness to follow Jesus, to live the life that God wants us to live. It's like any relationship. It implies a need for commitment. 
Now, um, you'll have noticed that in verse 16 that the alternative to eternal life is, is perishing. And that takes us into the next two verses. So let me just read verses 17 and 18. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Jesus did not come to condemn the world. Why? Because it was already condemned. That moment, um, that happened the moment the sin came in. That initial act of disobedience which caused the human race to turn away from God. And rejecting God, the source of life, is a choice that humanity has already made. We chose death. Um, we are under condemnation because, well, you know the old phrase, be careful what you wish for. Essentially, back in, in Eden, that's exactly what Adam and Eve wished for. They were shown a, an alternative. They don't do what God wants. Look, you can do it your own way. The human race, all the descendants of the first man and woman, uh, we've chosen a different way. But because God is the source of all life, we have, in a sense, chosen the condemnation of death. But when God sent Jesus, he was intervening and giving us the opportunity as individuals to come back to him. And when he chose to punish his son for the sin of the world, he made it possible, as we so often say, for a just and righteous God who otherwise, because of his justice and um, holiness, could not overlook sin, it made it possible for God to treat us as if we'd never sinned at all. The, the, the amazing doctrine of justification. He made it possible for God to forgive the guilty because Jesus had paid the price, had been punished in our place. And crucially, as we read in both verses 16 and verse 18, it's believing that makes the difference. We either remain under condemnation, the consequences of our sin, the wages of sin, as Romans 6 and 23 puts it, um, or by believing, we allow God to save us. Um, and that really is the good news of the Bible. Final section, um, which I'm going to just look at briefly, verses 19 to 21, begins with, with the words, this is the verdict. Um, it doesn't mention the word belief again, actually. Um, but what it's saying here is that there are basically two types of people in the world. And they are defined by different actions and attitudes towards God. Belief is still the governing factor. Because it's what we believe about God that determines whether or not we try to live God's way. And even if a person on the face of it is living a good life in the eyes of their friends and neighbours, uh, unbelief, they're not a believer, unbelief is still a rejection of God. Um, the unbeliever is still in the darkness and under condemnation. So we come back to the importance of belief. We come back to the reason why John wrote this gospel. You remember on the first week of this, as we started this study through, through um, John a few weeks ago, 
um, we, we looked at the um, chapter 20 and we discovered there that John says just towards the end of his gospel, this is why I've written it. This is, this is why it's here. This is why I've committed all of these things about what Jesus did and said. This is why I've written it down. So people can believe. Chapter 20, the verse says, These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you have life in his name. It's an amazing um, truth, isn't it? That by believing in the Lord Jesus, appreciating that as sinners there was nothing we could do to earn our place in heaven, but God loved us, sent his son to die for us, and that by believing in that and believing in him, we can have eternal life. Um, it's a, it's a wonderful passage, isn't it? And it's one of those things, even though there are difficult verses in this passage, as I've felt duty-bound to have a look at with you this morning, um, the, difficult, the different interpretations that we put on some of these verses, and it's the same throughout the Bible, it doesn't affect the things that we can be truly confident in, the things which are laid out for us plainly and clearly that Jesus can be our saviour if we put our trust in him.